You're listening to the So What Podcast. And so, you know, this this spiritual unity that we have, the fact that we we as Christians are united to Christ means that we are not only connected to current Christians around the world, but we're connected to all Christians throughout space and time, past, present, and future. As you're worshiping together as a corporate body, you're unified, not just to your local congregation, but to all Christians, because you are part of the one body of Christ. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to discuss that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Dave Kakish, Matt O'Reilly, and Brad Mills. On this episode, we are honored to be joined by Dr. Matt Emerson. Dr. Emerson earned a PhD in Biblical Theology from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and currently serves as the Dickinson Assistant Professor of Religion at Oklahoma Baptist University. He's the author of Christ and the New Creation, a canonical approach to the theology of the New Testament, and is currently the co-editor of the Journal of Baptist Studies. Today he'll be joining us to discuss the line in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of the saints. Before heading over to the discussion, again, we'd just like to thank you for listening to So What and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhat.com. Any questions you have can be emailed to hello at SoWhatPodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at SoWhat underscore podcast. So, Dr. Emerson, thank you very much for being on So What Podcast. It's a pleasure for us to have you here. Yeah, I'm grateful to be here with all of you. On this episode, we're talking about the line of the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of the saints. What I thought would be helpful is to break down initially those three words that we see in the Creed, Holy Catholic Church. Uh, What does it mean to be holy? Uh, Why is this an Apostles' Creed that's meant to be uh, understood and explaining the entirety of the the universal church, and yet here we have the word Catholic? And what does it mean to be a church? So I thought it would be a good idea to talk about that first one. Uh, What does it mean to be holy? Sure. Yeah, so this is is an affirmation uh, that the church is made righteous by Christ, uh, it's not a statement of the church's infallibility. It's not a statement about uh, any particular member's perfection, but it is a statement that because Christ is righteous and because he imputes his righteousness to us, the church is also righteous and holy. Uh, they live holy lives. They're called to live holy lives, uh, are called to confession every day and, and every Sunday with, with each other is a call to repent of any sin and to pursue holiness once again, whether it's that day or that week with our, with our corporate body. Uh, so this is a statement about what the church is supposed to be, what it's declared to be, and what it's becoming 
in Christ. That's a great summary. The one thing that popped into my mind uh, that's not a, a topic that we like to talk about, church discipline. I, so we're, we, would we say that corrective uh, measures within the life of the church constitutes the church being made holy? Yeah, you know, so the in the summary there, I said that it's what, you know, we're becoming. So we're becoming holy, right? We're not totally holy yet. Um, we're not completely righteous yet. We're still pursuing holiness. And so this is something, and this is why this, this statement is couched within a confession about what the church is, because the pursuit of holiness is like all of life uh, as a Christian, done so within the corporate body of the church. So as I pursue holiness, I'm not doing that by myself as just sort of a lone ranger Christian, although certainly it's it's uh, there's a responsibility that lies with me individually. I'm doing that with my my fellow Christians, with my brothers and sisters in Christ, in the local body and in the corporate body of Christ universally. So uh, yes, local church discipline is part of the confession that the church is holy, not uh, not as a negative instrument, but as a positive means to to push those who are in Christ towards holiness. And so, as as we are loving one another in our pursuit of holiness, part of that is holding one another accountable to pursue righteousness instead of pursuing sin. To set our mind on the spirit instead of setting our mind on the flesh. And this is something that we do together. So yes, church discipline is part of that pursuit of holiness for us individually and corporately. I really appreciate the, the kind of the balance there between sort of status standing, uh, with, with God, but also the focus on ethics and morality and growth and holiness. Um, because I tend to think we, we, um, especially in the Reformed or Protestant Reformation tradition, we tend to emphasize the standing to the neglect of the ethics. And um, case in point, um, in Romans 1, 7, you've got, Paul says, to all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints. Could be translated called to be holy. Um, and one day I was in my study and I wanted to see what people are saying about that, so I pulled down a couple of commentaries, kind of standard standard uh, works. And Typically, the Reformed tradition, the Protestant folks say, this is not about the quality of their lives. It's not about their character. It's about their status, their standing, right? They've been set apart. Um, and as one coming from a more Wesleyan slant, I want to push back against that, especially given what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, you know, about stop sinning. And so I appreciate maybe, you know, is there a tendency? Am I misreading that? Maybe you can help us out with a little bit. You no, know, I, I think that's right. Um, I think there is a tendency towards focusing on status. And, you know, we have, I mean, the Reformation wasn't in, in many ways about defining justification, and which, which is a, a status question in in many ways. So, you know, justification is not only about status. There are other things that go into that. But it is largely about uh uh, status before God. So, yes, because that's our heritage and because that was the impetus for the Reformation, yes, we still, I think, tend towards focusing on our status before God, and sometimes that leads to the neglect of our continuing progress towards what we've already been declared to be. So, you know, some of this, I think, is just our heritage, our history, and, and, and is, it's not that the Reformers didn't talk about 
the need for ethics is that you know this is this was the big issue for them, and because we we're, we're reading their works and and following after them, you know we we follow in their focus, and so that tends to be our focus. I think some of it is probably not the reformers' fault, but but probably our fault in sort of you know what happens when you have a teacher is the ones who follow after. Uh, tend to take things to the extremes, and this may be what has happened uh, with our focus on status rather than ethics. Uh, later on, is that you know even though the reformers were were more balanced, those who come after may not be as balanced. And so you know it's always helpful to try to either swing the pendulum back to the middle or keep it in the middle. And so I, I think I do think that we're at a stage in evangelicalism where those things are starting to come back into balance. I mean, you know, I don't know when this is going to air, but yesterday, when we're recording this, yesterday Jerry Bridges passed away. And Jerry Bridges, uh, who wrote a lot for Navigators and, and other stuff like that, uh, Jerry Bridges was very influential in in my own Christian walk. And his books tend to be about you know this pursuit of holiness right i mean that's one of his books <laughs> uh you know but but not just being declared but also pursuing it and he's had an enormous impact on me and and on i think our generation so you know i think these things are coming back into balance i like where that's going if i could set up maybe a foil for you i mean as we look around at you know maybe not our own uh, denominations communions whatever um there there are churches though who are not only uh unconcerned about holiness, but are actually, uh, you know, affirming and mm-hmm. enshrining patterns of sinfulness that the Bible condemns. If I could mm-hmm. just set up a foil for you, well, I mean, lay out for us, what's at stake here in the church's mm-hmm. holiness? You know, why is this such a big deal that it would be put in a creed alongside Christ's resurrection? Right. Well, I think the importance of it is, as as Matt alluded to, a minute ago, and as I alluded to in, in the way I framed my first answer, you know, Romans 6 says that if you are a new creation in Christ, if you have died to sin and have been raised to new life, then living in sin is not an option for you. It, it's, a, it's a logical contradiction. It's impossible. And so when we talk about the holiness of the church, the reason I think that the Apostles' Creed include holy as one of the two adjectives to describe the church is because this is the fundamental word that describes who we are. Yeah. We, we are holy persons. We are new creations who have been uh, made to die to sin and live to Christ. That's our identity. Yeah. And so what's at stake is not just sort of this difference in interpretation about particular passages or, you know, a difference in um, where we stand on certain issues. The, 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 what's at stake is our identity. And if, and if we are ignoring areas where the Bible is clear, that's not a hermeneutical, you know, quagmire that we're all just sort of in and nobody can get out of and we should just, just all agree to disagree. If if one side or the other is wrong, that's that's a fundamental move away from our identity as holy persons in Christ. I feel like when we're discussing holiness here, you're talking about the quality of our Christian character, and of course that is part of it, but that's not the whole of it, correct? Being holy is something being consecrated, set apart for a purpose. And when Peter kind of talks about that, 
the church now is distinct from the world around it. Uh, in they, what way, though? Yeah, in, Char- who, in character. So you in would, the terms of your character. No, I, I think in <laughs> in the terms of the object of their faith, who they believe in. They they believe in the risen Lord who is over Caesar. Yeah. Uh, of course, character follows. We are to be like him. But what sets us apart is that we don't live for this. We're no longer in the dominion of the religious world, Ephesians two, but we honor and live for the glory of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been set apart to do that, to be sojourners and strangers in this land, marching to a land that we've yet to arrive at um, while spreading the good news. Uh, So I just wanted to hit both sides of holiness, not just uh, perfectionism, um, but uh, a purpose set apartness. So So I I would want to push back a little bit and say that that sort of consecrated identity um, is the instrument for the implementation of the the holy character, um, it's not it's step one, not the goal, not the ultimate thing. Um, and and to answer the what's at stake question, I would want to say that what's at stake is God's reputation. Um, Ezekiel thirty six, God says, uh, "The nation shall know that I am the Lord God when through you, His people, I display my holiness before their eyes." Through the so the, the nations will know that God is God when God's people embody God's character. And it's very much a character issue in Ezekiel 36 because they've just been condemned for idolatry and adultery and all yeah. sorts of murderous ways. Um, and the the thing that makes the difference is the Holy Spirit. Right? I'm going to put a new spirit That's in you it. so that yep. you can keep my laws exactly and obey it. my statutes. Mm-hmm. And so the people have been set apart since Sinai. They've been consecrated to God. The problem is they haven't, um, the purpose of their consecration hasn't yeah. been realized yeah. with Pentecost the the thing the Holy Spirit the presence of the Holy Spirit enables that yeah. realization of the purpose of their consecration, and the church is dispatched throughout the world to embody the character of God, which is the the fulfillment the realization of the initial consecration. Yeah, I'm not trying to set up a false dichotomy in either or. What I'm saying is, I don't want to focus on one side. It's yeah. definitely mm-hmm. both. Ends. I mean, yeah. Romans yeah, one yeah. one, Paul says, "I've been set apart for the gospel." Before yeah. Romans one six. You guys are, are called yeah. saints. And I, would, I wouldn't want to negate one or the other, but I want to, the clarifying that relationship, mm-hmm. I think, is very important. Yeah, I, absolutely. And, and I think the big thing, the Holy Spirit enabled, right? Yeah. Paul says in Galatians, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And, yeah. and that really is like how, <laughs> how we are identified. And I, I think both facets uh, answered the question, uh, not just what am I to be like, holy in character, but who am I, identity issue. Mm. Uh, I have been set apart for a purpose, which includes the character. Yeah, I just get, I get frustrated when I hear people say things like that, not you say things like that and then try to sort of say yeah well you know you just get sins a part of being human just got to live with it you know yeah. we're holy our status is holy yeah. but um but you know it's okay if you cheat on your wife or something right and and you get that kind of weird thing in evangelicalism sometime that and and it we need to push back against that so now dr emerson earlier you were talking about the protestant reformation and uh how we may have been uh fixated on certain issues or certain issues i should say were held above others uh i kind of feel like that's a strange segue into the second word here catholic uh if somebody if somebody was reading this as a protestant and they come to holy catholic church they'll drop the creed and and run away right what does this mean we're going back to rome uh of course that's not what it means could you explain uh what does it mean to be a part of the holy catholic church sure yeah and and let me just pull a uh debate strategy here that we've seen on 
the cable news networks recently where I'm going to answer a previous question first. Are you going to make America great again? <laughs> Can you make the podcast great again? <laughs> this is the third section of the creed, and it starts, I believe, in the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, all of these clauses that come after are works of the Spirit. And so yeah. I appreciated how we ended that last conversation where, we, you know, it's a reminder that all of this is ultimately a work of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. So the, the fact that there is a church and that it's holy and Catholic, uh, the fact that the saints do have communion with one another, the fact that we do have forgiveness of sins that's applied to us, the fact that our bodies will be raised, all of that's a work of the Spirit. And so I think that's, a, that's an important thing to keep in mind as we talk through these clauses. Now, as far as the, the holy Catholic Church is concerned, this is, again, the work of the Spirit uh, to unite believers together. I mean, the word Catholic is not referring to Rome and the Pope and all the rest. It's, it's simply a word that means universal. Uh, now, you know, some people would say, well, why don't we just change the word of the creed to universal or whatever? Well, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm not crazy about changing things that are 2,000 years old. So <laughs> right. uh, that's my answer. Um, but, but it just means universal. And what it's affirming is that the, the body of Christ, this is, this is something we're going to keep coming back to, but the body of Christ is unified together in Christ through the Spirit. And that happens both in, in a universal sense. So, you know, there, there is a universal church. The, the entire body of Christ that's united to Christ is also therefore united to one another. So every every individual Christian that is united to Christ is also united to all other Christians. And we'll come back to that when we get to the communion of saints. But this this is also an affirmation of um, visible unity. That there is there there is one this is how the uh, other creeds put it. This there is one holy apostolic and catholic church there's one church and it's visibly unified now this doesn't mean necessarily institutional unity this is this is where uh you know when catholics want to push us this is where even anglicans want to push us that there there has to be institutional visible unity and what i would say as a baptist is that that's not what it means i don't think uh to have catholicity visible and spiritual unity with other believers. When we talk about the visible church, um, it sounds almost to some degree that we're, maybe help us out with a little bit. In, in what sense, so two questions, in what sense would Baptists and Methodists and other Protestants be visibly unified with the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church? And then secondly, um, when we talk about this, I think we probably tend to think in terms of Christians who are alive today what about um, a more sort of chronologically inclusive mm. sense when we talk about the communion of saints? Yeah. To what degree are we um, unified with the saints who have gone before, thinking especially, you know, of Hebrews and the, the sort of hall, hall of Fame of Saints and you know the, the Augustans and the Wesleys and the Calvins and folks like that? Yeah, so <clears throat> as far as visible unity is concerned um, with, with present Christians, I need to start off by saying as a, as a Baptist and as a Protestant, uh, I find very serious errors within Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox doctrine. And so the way that I articulate any sort of unity with those two bodies 
is going to be different from how I articulate unity uh, with fellow Protestants, particularly fellow evangelicals. Um, so, so as far as evangelical Protestants are concerned, you know, I think visible unity can be achieved in any number of ways. Uh, this, this is not institutional unity. I think we need to be very clear that there are still denominational differences that take into account everything from membership to organization to soteriology. You know, so, I mean, we need to be clear that when I say visible unity, I don't mean we all just sort of become a smorgasbord with, you know, without any distinction. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, given those very real differences, I think there is still a possibility of visible through a number of avenues. What I what I have encouraged pastors to do, what I would do if if I were pastoring a local church right now, uh, or serving as an elder right now, is is I would encourage first of all just very simply prayer for other local congregations in your service. That's good. Yeah, uh, this is a very easy way to encourage visible unity in your local geographical area with other churches. Just pay for them in church. An another way to encourage visible unity is to participate with other bodies, whether it's local congregations or other denominations, in service and mission work. Now, you know, what you are doing with other congregations or other denominations will, you know, will depend on denominational distinctive. So, for instance, um, if somebody is confessing Christ, I'm happy to go serve at a soup kitchen with them or, or you know, do a coat drive or something. I, I think as we get into the areas of missions and church planning, that question becomes very, uh, very different. The answer to that question becomes very different. You know, so, for instance, if I'm going overseas uh, and, and my goal is to plant churches, I, I might be willing to partner, I would be willing to partner with, say, a Methodist congregation, uh, you know, uh, with all of the doctrinal, you know, conversations where we're in agreement on the big stuff. I would, I would be able, I would be willing to, to go over with a Methodist congregation and share language training with them, share, you know, tent making training with them, share uh, other avenues of training or support. But when it came to the actual church planning, because I have differences with uh, the Methodist doctrines on, for instance, baptism, uh, it, it would, you know, in my mind at least, it's, it's going to be very difficult for us to plan a church together, given our very sharp differences on who and who is baptized and when they're baptized. And so, you know, when we talk about visible unity, there's all sorts of options there as far as service and missions are concerned. But I think you have to articulate exactly what you would do with whom in any given circumstance. So so I think one of the ways I try to explain this to people is I talk about three tiers of doctrine kind of issues. And um, tier one for me is kind of key essential doctrines, the Trinity, the incarnation, the bodily bodily resurrection of Jesus. Um, those are those are things that justification for faith. Yeah, things that make you a Christian or not, or define the boundaries of the Christian faith. Um, tier two would be sort of matters of polity. So Matt, you and I would have difficulty because of our differing views on baptism, serving on the ch same church staff, right? We, um, you know, it's not that you know we're brothers, we affirm each other's Christian faith, um, we're friends, but but um, when I start baptizing babies, we might, you know, it's, it's difficult for us to to 
be on the same staff or in the same same kind of setting there. And then the third tier would be sort of things that we can just agree to disagree on and they don't interfere with common worship, you know. Like Timetable and sequence of. Eschatology uh, yeah. kinds of things, uh, yeah. you know. Um, so I would rather someone in my congregation not teach about the rapture in Sunday school, but it's not going to be a membership kind of <laughs> right, issue. <laughs> right. Um, so I think... I think that kind of pushes us into this this last part of the line that we're talking about, the communion of the saints. Uh, and there's the famous saying that goes, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Uh, and, and I noticed you, you spoke about non-essentials perhaps as being denominational differences. Um, so I think it would be interesting to talk about what do we believe are um, essentials that bring us unity and what are non-essentials uh, that we may have liberty in. Hey, here's a question that gets to that a little bit. You said you'd serve at a soup kitchen with someone who affirms Christ, but what about an atheist? Would you, would you serve at a soup kitchen with, an, with someone who doesn't affirm? You know, Christ? certainly I would, I mean, I'm basically willing to serve at a soup kitchen with just about anybody. I mean, you know, but if we're, if we're going there specifically, right? I mean, so not just to go and serve, but to go and actually evangelize yeah yeah you know I, mean, I think that's that's where i'm saying i would be willing to serve it so we're not talking about you know volunteering on the weekend but sort of a i mean you know coordinated church mission the sort of yeah. civic involvement well yeah you know. <laughs> just to clarify that i want to ask a question because i'm i'm with matt and i think we all are a tiered doctrine a triage of doctrines that mm. what Mueller calls it and I agree with his uh, distinctions. I really do. Uh, unfortunately for all of us, we don't have in the Bible, these are tiered doctrines. These are things you can right. disagree over. There's this push for unity. I wish Paul would say, guys, this is the deal on baptism. I'm a Pado baptist or I'm a Credo baptist but there's room for you on the other side, Peter. We don't see that in Scripture. And so I, I guess my question is, uh, we know that ecumenism uh, is something God wants. We see it in the priestly prayer of Jesus, that we would be one. And yet there are institutional distinctions between us, denominations and all the rest. And uh, I'm with you guys in, in separating these things in tiers. Uh, of course, the problem is that that's completely subjective. Uh, just like when we throw around phrases like the rule of faith, I'm all for it. Whose rule? Mm. Uh, who, who gets Mine. to determine? I mean, I grew up in a very charismatic church where if you did not speak in tongues, you were not a Christian. Mm. That is a primary issue for them, whereas mine, cessationism, continuationism, is a third-level issue. And so there's still some subjectivity in communion of the saints in well, categorizing tiers of doctrine. Mm -hmm. The baptism thing is there. You just have to read with your eyes open. I'll try. Oh, that's... <laughs> So that's the problem. Lord, help my unbelief. <laughs> uh, Matt, I'm sorry I threw you a curveball there, but help me out. No, that's that's good. Um, so, you know, what I would say there is I think there are a number of, of ways to navigate this particular question. You know, what is first order? What is second order? What is third order? How do we build towards ecumenism? So I, I would say that, you know, the first way – and, and the primary way that we determine what it means to be a Christian is Scripture. I mean, Scripture is always, and this, this is a Latin term that I'll come back to, it's the, it's the norma normans, right? It's the norming norm. You always come back to Scripture. This is what the Reformation pushed, was for us to be always reforming, not based on just ethical concerns about the Pope and his debaucherous ways in Rome, but but about doctrine, about scripture. Come back to the text. And so when we talk about 
what it means to be a Christian, what's a first order issue, that needs to be first of all defined by the text. But I think there are there are other aids that the Holy Spirit has given us, not inspired like Scripture, but the Spirit is still illumining our hearts and our minds to understand the inspired Scriptures through His continuing work in the church. And so I think He's giving us given us some aids. I think uh, first of all, He's given us aids in the the creeds particularly the first three. Uh, so when we talk about what it means to be a Christian, I think those are big helps in, ter- in, in defining that. I think he's also given us, uh, you know, in terms of second order, third order, first order, uh, he's, giving us, he's given us a number of other historical helps that we wouldn't call ecumenical creeds, but we certainly would say that the church at this point in time has clarified for us a particular issue. So, for instance, with the Reformation, uh, the Reformation clarifies for us the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of justification, uh, a number of other issues that that weren't previously or clarified, or if they had been clarified in the early church, they were muddled uh, in the in medieval period by the Roman Catholic Church. So, you know, I, I think that the Holy Spirit has given us helps. You know, rule of faith would be another one. Uh, I think that's probably more hermeneutical than it is necessarily this triage issue, but but I think it's still an aid for reading. None of that is inspired in the same you know in the way that Scripture is inspired. I would say though that the the Spirit is still working uh, through the church to help us read Scripture and understand it rightly. So when I I put all that together, my answer to that question is okay. In Scripture, what I see is that you need to affirm that Jesus is Lord, that he died for sin, that he rose from the dead, that he is one with the Father and the Spirit. And these are these are things that I see in Scripture that need to be affirmed. Of course, we can say some other stuff besides that. But, I mean, when we're talking about big, what are the primary things that Christians are affirming in the New Testament? Uh, I think those are pretty big. You know, then we move, I, I think, on to, okay, how does that work itself out? in the local bodies that we see, in the universal church that we see. And I think here is where we get into secondary matters. You know, I have, I have very clear views on baptism. I have very clear views on polity. I think there is enough ambivalence in how I read and in how others read for me to say, you know what, I think this is clear. I think it's clear that adults are baptized in the New Testament. I think it's clear that it's those who believe and profess faith are baptized in the New Testament. I think it's clear that the picture of baptism is dying to sin, rising to life. I think all that's very clear. But I think there's enough room for me to say that if you believe that Jesus is Lord, that he died for sin, that he rose from the dead, that he's one with the Father and the Spirit as one God in three persons. I think if you affirm all of that and you disagree on baptism, I think there's enough room there for me to still call you a Christian. Uh, you know, so I think that's where we get the second order uh, kind of language. And then yeah. third order would be stuff, you know, like Matt mentioned, uh, the rapture where, you know, look, we can have various interpretations. It doesn't affect, doesn't affect our local congregation's operation. We can disagree on it within a local body and and still fill our function and purpose as the local church. So, I mean, that's how I work through it uh, in terms of what's first order, what's second order, what's third order. I think I will say this. I think that people today are very prone to say Nicaea is enough. And, you know, I have I have some proclivity towards that sentiment. 
because because I, I I want to be you know quick to listen at the same time to say that Christianity and who's a Christian to say that we have settled all doctrinal issues in the fourth century ignores the rest of the Christian tradition and I think ignores the many important conversations that the church has had and the decisions that churches have made in subsequent centuries you know so I, I'm prone to that sentiment that Nicaea is enough, but then I see departures in other areas away from Nicaea where I think, no, no, no. Yeah. Uh, that's a very important issue as well. You know, so Nicaea doesn't address the doctrine or scripture. That's right. So, nor justification. Or justification. Nicaea doesn't address uh, the ethical issues that we're facing today. You could be a Unitarian Universalist and believe in the Nicene Creed as well. A modalist. A modalist, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you have a bit more trouble with the Athanasian and... Right. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but still no work on justification. Even the first six, seven ecumenical creeds, we got nothing on justification. And, and, and you also, you know, and so what I find many times is when people say Nicaea is enough, what they mean is, I don't want you to judge me on this departure from Christian tradition in another area. <laughs> so we've been talking a little bit about almost kind of diagnostic uh, language of how we discern the communion of saints and these levels of, of unity. If I can shift the direction a little bit, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this as well. One of my, for me, one of the most important things in my experience of being a part of the communion of saints has been um, discovery of the common prayer tradition. Um, so when I sit down and I pray morning prayer and I'm praying, um, you know, we have not loved you with our whole heart and kind of have those plural first person pronouns. And it's, it's, it's been important for me to sort of develop a sense of I'm not praying this by myself, even though I may be, you know, in a room by myself. These are prayers that believers all over the world are praying um, this morning, and believers throughout the centuries have prayed these same prayers. And I, I have a sense of unity in the spirit with those folks, both geographically and chronologically, um, that has sort of emerged out of that common prayer tradition. You've done some work on on that sort of thing, I, I believe. Tell us a little bit about your experience there. You know, this was the, the third point uh, of my how do we achieve visible unity is there are also worship practices that uh, we can use to demonstrate visible unity. So not only as I pray for other churches and not only as I serve or go on the mission field with other churches do I demonstrate visible unity, uh, but, you know, everything from saying the Lord's Prayer to reciting uh, the Creed, whether it's the Apostles uh, or the Nicene Creed or maybe even the Athanasian Creed, uh, to having a church calendar where you're doing scripture readings, to the whole shape of the service, to the church year. I mean, these are all ways in which you can demonstrate visible unity with other Christians yes. in a local church. So one of the ways, if I can throw this in, then maybe finish on up. Um, one of the ways that I found helpful in just in ordering the life of the the worship life of the church I pastor is when we we say the Apostles' Creed um, in our service, and and as sort of a rubric or a segue into that, I'll commonly say something now, like "Let us now, with one voice, affirm the faith that believers have affirmed throughout the centuries," or something like that, as a way of sort of saying, "Look, this isn't just us doing this because we like it or it's nifty." but believers have been identified from the beginning with these affirmations of faith. Right. Yeah, that's right. 
And so, you know, this, this spiritual unity that we have, which is the, the affirmation of the communion of the saints, is visibly demonstrated in a number of ways. So coming back to your question about the, the communion, uh, this is a, to me, this was sort of mind-blowing once, once I thought about this in any, any detail. But and it's amazing when you think about it. The fact that we, we as Christians are united to Christ and therefore caught up in the life of the triune God means that we are not only connected to current, you know, in other words, living Christians around the world, but we're connected to all Christians throughout space and time, past, present, and future. In heaven and on earth. But as you're praying, uh, as you take the Lord's Supper, as you're living your Christian life, as you're worshiping together as a corporate body, you're unified, not just to your local congregation, but to all Christians. Because you are part of the one body of Christ. You are united to one another by the one Spirit of Christ. I mean, this is a, this is to me an, an amazing concept, an amazing truth that that you have spiritual unity with every single Christian who's ever lived and who will ever live in heaven and on earth. So what? What does it mean that the church is holy and Catholic? Well, we are holy in that we are set apart from the world by our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and not the powers and authorities of the world. This belief leads us toward a representation of God in our lives as we strive after a life that looks like Christ's through the power of the Holy Spirit. As the Catholic Church, that word meaning universal, Christians exhibit unity despite having differences with matters of polity, minor theological points, or even distances between space and time. And we accomplish this through prayer for other local congregations in the church and joining efforts for missiological efforts to further Christ's kingdom on earth. Well, we hope you join us next episode as Dr. Greg Allison rejoins us to discuss the line, We Believe in the Holy Spirit. And as we are nearing the end of our series on the Apostles' Creed, you might be wondering, what's next? Well, wonder no longer. Our next series is called The Gospel According to Heretics, where we will be examining various Christian heresies throughout church history. Subtitle to the series, What Not to Preach to Your Congregation, Unless You're Looking for an Interesting Exit.